Mary Lou and I feel very honored to have been able to attend this conference. And we go away with our hearts encouraged. And we feel like we've been retooled on this subject. So we appreciate the opportunity of being here and to interact with the other speakers and with each one of you. I'm to bring the final challenge here this morning, and I've been thinking about this all week and trying to hear what was being said and what were some of the reoccurring themes. And there were many reoccurring themes. But one thing which I heard a number of people, uh, speakers talk about, shortly in passing, and these good people out here sang about it one day, was the whole matter of the self-life and our need for brokenness. And that came up several times by various speakers. Death to self, the fullness of the spirit, brokenness. It seems to me that the breakup of a marriage, the breakup of a home, is one of the most tragic things that ever happened to people in our churches. And as we deal with them, and obviously share a very um, clear but difficult message, we need to somehow trust God to give us the kind of brokenness and empathy that will make that truth much more acceptable. And they'll be sensing that although we share a difficult truth, we do it with a heart of compassion, the kind of compassion that Dr. Webb talked about yesterday. I remember early in my missionary career, I heard an Argentine pastor speak to us as missionaries and pastors. And he said, always discipline with tears. Always discipline with tears. I've never forgotten that. Well, I wanted to remind us this morning that uh, God basically dwells in two places. Isaiah 57, turn there if you will please to verse 15, Isaiah 57, verse 15. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. It's been well said that God only dwells in two places, in the high and lofty place, Lord over all. And then he comes down and he dwells in the heart of the contrite person, the broken person, the person who understands what it means to be broken. Now, <clears throat> you hear David, in his confession in Psalm 51, 17, saying something similar, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
have broken in a contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. I have a handout there. I gave you three of them, actually. Just look for a moment at the um, white page. The message in the front of that is by Nancy DeMoss, godly young woman, and has a powerful message there on renewal, revival. Turn it over, and here's one to take into the closet on a regular basis and to just analyze as you check out the points, which, which side of the page are you on? Are you a proud, unbroken person? Or are you a broken person? E.W. Tozer used to say, God only uses broken people. Broken people. So that's a little assignment to take with you as you think about the whole matter of renewal and revival. We all need times of renewal, of revival. And in times of revival, and I've been around a couple of them, there's a time when there is a brokenness. That is a time when God is speaking in a very powerful way. And there's a time when people make decisions, hard decisions and they follow through with repentance. Revivals, if you read anything about a genuine revival, one of the fruits of those revivals is always the restoration of marriages. That was true of the Canadian revival in 1871 in Saskatoon and Regina, where I was present at the time. Many testimonies to marriages being healed. I was reading recently about the revivals in Korea in the early 1900s. There's a little book that written by Jonathan Goforth, a Presbyterian missionary from Canada. And he heard about these revivals, and before he went back to China for his last term, almost blind, he went to Korea and spent time there because of what God was doing. We all know about the tremendous growth of the Korean church. We sometimes forget how that got started. That got started in the revival in the early 1900s. And I was reading some of that recently, and I noticed that some of the people who were revived, these Chinese people, one man that tells how he was, um, God met him and convicted him of the fact that he had remarried, had married a woman, had two children by her, and he took action in that revival to provide financially for that woman and for the two girls, and went back and was reconciled with his wife. That is the fruit of revival. Powerful. Powerful. Well, what about revival? <clears throat> What's the criticism of revival? Well, there's lots of criticism, criticism of the revival. One is, they don't last. Well, <laughs> The very definition of revival implies it don't last. It is to relive again, to be renewed, and that does not happen on a continuous basis. It happens to bring people back to the normal Christian life. 
And so that's rather empty kind of a criticism. Another criticism is that revivals often bring, produce wildfire. Well, that's true. Uh, we know that well from the Toronto blessing in Canada at the airport back in the 90s. That was one that uh, created all kinds of controversies and uh, question marks. But uh, I remember Charles John Wesley reading someplace that near the end of his life, and he had seen how his movement, the Methodist movement, had begun to go over the curve and drift down on the other side. And he one time was heard to pray, Oh God, send us the old time revival. Pause. But without the defects. Pause. But if you can't do that, Lord, send it anyhow with the defects. We desperately need it. And I think anybody, any pastor, any Christian leader who is not ready to handle wildfire will never have the real fire. That's going to have to happen. Because it always comes with some baggage. But we desperately need it. A third criticism of revival is, and this is not really expressed by anybody in our modern-day church, but if you really, if they really said the truth about how the negative reaction to revival and the emphasis on revival would be, well, you know, we're getting along quite well without it. Thank you. <laughs> and that is true. How can that be true? That can be true because they're getting along as, near, as Jeremiah mentioned in chapter 2, that they'd forsaken their God and the founts of living water and had built their own cisterns that they could not hold water. What are those broken cisterns? Those are the substitutes that the evangelical church is getting along with very well today. No problem. Because everybody's using them. Everybody's into substitutes. And what are some of those? Well, there is technology in the place of the supernatural. There is slick programs replacing the Holy Spirit. There's dry-eyed evangelism instead of uh, repentance with tears. There's therapeutic prayer instead of brokenness. There's church growth replacing church health. And there is Christian counseling that bypasses the, call, the cross. Christian counseling, if properly done, always begins with the cross. And what does this person need? And what could God do to them if they just get back to the cross again? And Christian counseling today, much of it does not even include the cross. Many more things. But that's the broken sisters, the substitutes. And if you look at the, uh, this one here, if somebody just turn on that uh, overhead there for me, please. Thank you. This uh, is, how many of you have ever studied experiencing God? All right. You know the author of this diagram then? It's uh, Henry Blackaby. 
his colleague King. This, to me, is a picture of the church today. God has called us to be on mission with him. World redemption, spiritual awakening. So on the left-hand side, you see God calls his people to join him on mission. What happens is they detour down into this cycle of the judges. They depart from God and disobey. God sends remedial judgment, discipline. Then they cry out. They are revived. They're renewed. And they're back on target again. But this is constantly happening. My estimation is that what I see of the church today in North America, 80% of them are in the cycle down below and are not on mission with God. And that's our major problem in the church today. We desperately need revival. Thank you. You can turn that off, please. <clears throat> Thank you. Well, why am I passionate about revival? Let me just quickly mention a few reasons. Number one, it is the heart of God. It is the heart of God. God says to his people constantly, return to me, for I have redeemed you, says the Lord, Isaiah 44. And in Malachi 3.7, the chapter after he comments about marriage, saying he hates divorce, God says, I am the Lord, I change not. Return to me, and I will return to you. I find myself preaching more and more on the whole matter. Finding the future in the past. Returning back to the cross. Returning back to the Holy Spirit. Returning back to our knees. And returning back to our mission with God. Going backwards in order to go forward with God. Billy Graham was criticized in his first major crusade in Los Angeles back in 1949. Some of the church fathers said it publicly in the paper that um, Graham's kind of evangelism set the church back 50 years. And when Billy heard that, he said, I'm disappointed. I wanted to set it back 2,000 years. That is what I'm saying. We are so infatuated today in our churches with what is new, what is modern, what is technical. And we're just going in that direction, finding something that's new, because if it's new, it's better. Well, the major things that God wants to do for us today are not new. They're old. He does not change. I am the Lord, I change not. It's going back to him in repentance and saying God uses in a powerful way. So, it's the heart of God. I'm jealous for God's glory. Peter tells us that judgment must begin at the house of God. And I am embarrassed today to be an evangelical and to see what is happening, especially with marriages among evangelical people in our churches. This is embarrassing. We who are the people who champion the cause of forgiveness and reconciliation can't even hold our own marriages together. And the world's watching and wondering what's going on. 
So I'm jealous for God's glory. We need revival. It is our greatest need. I talk a lot about historical drift. I do know that when God comes down in revival, he reverses it and turns it back up the curve. It's also the promise of Pentecost. I know revival is somewhat controversial, but I would remind you today that in the book of Acts, in chapter 10 and 11, 10 was a time when the Holy Spirit came down and filled Cornelius, he and his family, the Gentile. That's often called the, the Pentecost for the Gentiles, chapter 10 of Acts. But in chapter 10 and chapter 11, when Peter explains what happened, he talks about how this happened with us in the beginning, referring back to Pentecost. And this was another installment, another fulfillment of that prophecy from Joel, that God would pour his spirit upon all flesh. Happened at Pentecost. It happened in chapter 10. It happened in the Great Awakenings. And I believe there's still a part of that to be fulfilled in these last days. That uh, promise there from Acts chapter 2. The promise of Pentecost. I think we're going to have to live in these last days with, in the tension, with a contrast. On the one hand, things are getting worse and worse in society. On the other hand, God wants to pour a, a revival and pouring of the Spirit in these last days like we've never seen before. Bill Bright went to his grave recently. But his last book was on the great coming revival. He was trying to find two million Christians who would join him in a 40-day fast once a year for revival. I'm on that page. I think God's going to do great things just ahead. The last reason I believe in the revival is I've tasted it and I'll never be the same. We worked in Lima, Peru, city of six million back in the mid-70s. And the setting there was, in the early 70s, there was a church in an old house, 120 people. Sounds a bit like Pentecost, doesn't it? <laughs> no pastor. There was having all-night prayer meetings, praying for a pastor. And God answered their prayer. And it says the Reverend Alfredo Smith from Argentina, who came and became their pastor. And then God worked a miracle through R.G. Laternal, the industrialist. He had a, contact with a, a contract with the government of Peru. It had gone sour during the time of the leftist government. His money was locked in the country. And so he sent down his son to head up a foundation to make money available for evangelism in Peru. That all came together there in Lima. And so they built a uh, Christian education unit of four stories with an auditorium down below that held 400 people. That was filled within six months. Then they built a church alongside that held 1,000 people. That was filled within a year. Then they built a second church across town for 2,000 people. There were so many people coming to know Christ that there was a lot of baptisms, 60 and 70 baptisms every few weeks. So in the second church, they built two baptismal tanks, one in that corner, one in this corner. 
they baptized people two at a time. Never saw that before. After every baptismal service, there was an altar call. How many are here who need to be in the next baptismal service? And in classes this week, and 65 people would come forward and stand at the altar. That went on month after month, year after year, in the 70s. We arrived in the mid-70s and got in on that growth, amazing growth. Started night Bible school. And this night Bible school had no status. But university students left their university careers, came to that Bible study to study for ministry. Today, there's 65 alliance churches in that city of Peru, just alliance. And they're all were trained through that night Bible school. That was a great way to train people because during the time when there were crusades in the church down below next door, we'd always stop our classes a little early so these students could go down and counsel at the altar. There's nothing like training pastors in an environment of evangelism. That happened month after month. There was a meeting called one day in the middle of all this blessing. It was called by the leadership of the, what was called the Encounter with God program. There were missionaries there. There were pastors there, Korean pastors. And the subject was, we can't keep up with discipleship. Should we suspend evangelism for, and get caught up? And around and around they went in this meeting. I kept praying as I sat there, oh God, don't let them stop. And there's no Robert's Book of Rules or anything. You just keep talking to say, you got a consensus. And finally one prayer pastor stood up, he said, if we stop now, we're dead in the water. We've got to keep going. And I said, hallelujah. And we kept going. Kept going. Amazing. You see that kind of growth. But in the middle of all of that, a couple of pastors got sideways in one of the churches. And there was a conflict between them. And this was a kind of a conflict that would have shut down most churches, but not that church, not that movement. The elders of that church said, we cannot stop evangelism to solve this problem. We'll keep going and solve it on the side. And they resolved it on the side and kept going. Never miss a step. Well, marriages were healed in those conversions. Carlos Torres was a man who had been a school teacher. He had married in his non-Christian days. He had, he had um, not married, but lived commonwealth law with a lady. But they were incompatible. They broke up. There was one son, Victor, who was born of that union. He got saved. And he went back to find his wife or his former partner, led her to Christ. And they got married in a small little church wedding. And he became my assistant in extension education. And I turned it over to him after two and a half years. Carlos Torres went on to become the president of the national church of that country. He is now in glory. His son is in ministry. And his mother sends as well. These are some of the things that happened in Lima. Well, Growth has continued. And in the 1990s, they moved and added to evangelism. They added missions. They sent some missionaries out. They had a missionary in Russia, some missionaries in other parts of Latin America, other parts of the world. And they started having missionary conventions in the 1990s. I was down there for, to be speaking at one of them in 1995. And I was there on a Sunday night. 
I noticed that at the Church of a Thousand, there was a long line of people wanting to get into the service Sunday night. And I said, what's that all about? The convention doesn't start until tomorrow night. Well, they said, this is the last free night. <laughs> because starting tomorrow night, there's a registration fee of $6, equivalent to $6 American, to get in the missionary convention. And they had 1,300. They cut off the 1,300. And I said to some of them, you know, we twist people's arms back in Canada to get to the missionary convention. Here they're coming. You had to cut it off at 1,300 because people wanted to pay and be there. So they had a missionary convention, one all week. And this has been happening as they now sent more and more missionaries around the world. Well, last May in Cincinnati, there was meeting of our U.S. denomination, their annual council. At the annual council, they scheduled a special meeting when they were going to have the Peruvian president of the church there, and all foreign missionaries of Peru were to be there at that meeting, because that was a meeting that would officially announce and take action to remove all missionaries from Peru and turn them over to the national church. And so all our missionaries now have left Peru. They've been relocated in other parts of the world because God moved in the 70s. And that church today doesn't need missionaries. They can finish the job without us. That, to me, is a reminder that the revivals make a difference. Many, many fields would love to see that happen because missionaries keep going back and we're pretty sold because the church has not got strong enough. Well, oh God, I say, do it again, again and again. One of the good things that have happened in recent years with the revival movement is, back six years ago, the Canadian Revival Fellowship, their secretary of the Soterra Twins, were a well-known revival term, revival uh, activity. She said after one of their meetings, annual meetings, she said, that was wonderful. But wouldn't it even be better if we could get all the revival movements together to, and have one all together? And so they started that back six years ago. And there's 15 revival movements that will meet in the Cove in North Carolina this April 22nd for four days. I just believe that if we could somehow have a focus on revival and renewal along with this excellent and necessary ministry. It would bring to us, bring to the movement, a little bit more of a sensitivity, a little more brokenness, a little more empathy. I believe we need to consider that whole matter of revival and renewal. At one of the meetings I was at down there, my wife and I, a couple of years ago, somebody spoke about personal revival. He said, as you leave the meeting this morning, at the door there will be a piece of chalk. Take the piece of chalk with you to remind yourself, as someone has said, revival starts with the individual. And get alone with God. Draw a circle on the floor with that piece of chalk and step inside of it and say, oh God, revive everything inside this circle. I've never forgotten that. I carried that chalk for a long time in my pocket. May God lead us and give us another movie of the Spirit. Amen.